Prelude and Chapter One, Part One of Royal Highness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret S. Bayat. Royal Highness by Thomas Mann. Translated by A. Cecil Curtis. Prelude. The scene is the Albrechtstrasse, the main artery of the capital which runs from the Albrechtsplatz and the Old Schloss to the barracks of the Fusiliers of the Guard. The time is noon on an ordinary weekday. The season of the year does not matter. The weather is fair to moderate. It is not raining, but the sky is not clear. It is a uniform light gray, uninteresting and somber, and the street lies in a dull and sober light which robs it of all mystery, all individuality. There is a moderate amount of traffic, without much noise and crowd, corresponding to the not over-busy character of the town. Tram-cars glide past, a cab or two rolls by. Along the pavement stroll a few residents, colorless folk, passers-by, the public, people. Two officers, their hands in the slanting pockets of their gray greatcoats, approach each other, a general and a lieutenant. The general is coming from the Schloss, the lieutenant from the direction of the barracks. The lieutenant is quite young, a mere stripling, little more than a child. He has narrow shoulders, dark hair, and the wide cheekbones so common in this part of the world, blue, rather tired-looking eyes, and a boyish face with a kind but reserved expression. The general has snow-white hair, is tall and broad-shouldered, altogether a commanding figure. His eyebrows look like cotton-wool, and his mustache hangs right down over his mouth and chin. He walks with slow deliberation, his sword rattles on the asphalt, his plume flutters in the wind, and at every step he takes the big red lapel of his coat flaps slowly up and down. And so these two draw near each other. Can this rencontre lead to any complication? Impossible. Every observer can foresee the course this meeting will naturally take. We have on one side and the other age and youth, authority and obedience, years of service and docile apprenticeship, a mighty hierarchical gulf. Rules and prescriptions separate the two. Natural organization, take thy course. And instead, what happens? Instead, the following surprising, painful, delightful, and topsy-turvy scene occurs. The general, noticing the young lieutenant's approach, alters his bearing in a surprising manner. He draws himself up, yet at the same time seems to get smaller. He tones down with a jerk, so to speak, the splendor of his appearance, stops the clatter of his sword, and while his face assumes a cross and embarrassed expression, he obviously cannot make up his mind where to turn his eyes, and tries to conceal the fact by staring from under his cotton-wool eyebrows at the asphalt straight in front of him. The young lieutenant, too, betrays to the careful observer some slight embarrassment, which, however, strange to say, he seems to succeed, better than the gray-haired general, in cloaking with a certain grace and self-command. The tension of his mouth is relaxed into a smile at once modest and genial, 
and his eyes are directed with a quiet and self-possessed calm, seemingly without an effort, over the general's shoulder and beyond. By now they have come within three paces of each other, and, instead of the prescribed salute, the young lieutenant throws his head slightly back, at the same time draws his right hand, only his right, mark you, out of his coat pocket, and makes with this same white-gloved right hand a little encouraging and condescending movement, just opening the fingers with palm upwards, nothing more. But the general, who has awaited this sign with his arms to his sides, raises his hand to his helmet, steps aside, bows, making a half-circle as if to leave the pavement free, and deferentially greets the lieutenant with reddening cheeks and honest, modest eyes. Thereupon the lieutenant, his hand to his cap, answers the respectful greeting of his superior officer, answers it with a look of childlike friendliness, answers it, and goes on his way. A miracle! A freak of fancy! He goes on his way. People look at him, but he looks at nobody, looks straight ahead through the crowd, with something of the air of a woman who knows that she is being looked at. People greet him, he returns the greeting, heartily and yet distantly. He seems not to walk very easily. It looks as if he were not much accustomed to the use of his legs, or as if the general attention he excites bothers him, so irregular and hesitating is his gait. Indeed, at times he seems to limp. A policeman springs to attention. A smart woman, coming out of a shop, smiles and curtsies. People turn round to look at him, nudge each other, stare at him, and softly whisper his name. It is Klaus Heinrich, the younger brother of Albrecht II, and heir presumptive to the throne. There he goes, he is still in view. Known, and yet a stranger, he moves among the crowd, people all around him, and yet as if alone. He goes on his lonely way and carries on his narrow shoulders, the burden of his highness. Chapter 1. The Constriction Artillery salvos were fired when the various new-fangled means of communication in the capital spread the news that the Grand Duchess Dorothea had given birth to a prince for the second time at Grimburg. Seventy-two rounds resounded through the town and surrounding country, fired by the military in the walls of the citadel. Directly afterwards, the fire brigade also, not to be outdone, fired with the town salute guns, but in their firing there were long pauses between each round, which caused much merriment among the populace. The Grimburg looked down from the top of a woody hill on the picturesque little town of the same name, which mirrored its grey sloping roofs in the river which flowed past it. It could be reached from the capital in half an hour by a local railway, which paid no dividends. There the castle stood, the proud creation of the margrave Klaus Grimbart, the founder of the reigning house in the dim mists of history, since then several times rejuvenated and repaired, fitted with the comforts of the changing times, always kept in a habitable state, and held in peculiar honor as the ancestral seat of the ruling house, the cradle of the dynasty for it was a rule and tradition of the house that all direct descendants of the margrave, every child of the reigning couple, must be born there. 
this tradition could not be ignored. The country had had sophisticated and unbelieving sovereigns who had laughed at it, and yet had complied with it with a shrug of the shoulders. It was now much too late to break away from it whether it was reasonable and enlightened or not. Why, without any particular necessity, break with an honored custom, which has managed somehow to perpetuate itself? The people were convinced that there was something in it. Twice in the course of fifteen generations had children of reigning sovereigns, owing to some chance or other, first seen the light in other schlosses. Each had come to an unnatural and disgraceful end. But all the sovereigns of the land, and their brothers and sisters, from Henry the Confessor and John the Headstrong, with their lovely and proud sisters, down to Albrecht, the father of the Grand Duke, and the Grand Duke himself, Johann Albrecht III, had been brought into the world in the castle, and there, six years before, Dorothea had given birth to her firstborn, the heir apparent. The castle was also a retreat as dignified as it was peaceful. The coolness of its rooms, the shady charms of its surroundings, made it preferable as a summer residence to the stiff Hollerbrunn. The ascent from the town, up a rather badly paved street between shabby cottages and a scrubby wall, through massive gates to the ancient ruin at the entrance to the castle-yard, in the middle of which stood the statue of Klaus Grimbart, the founder, was picturesque but tiring. But a noble park spread at the back of the castle hill, through which easy paths led into the wooded and gently swelling uplands, offering ideal opportunities for carriage drives and quiet strolls. As for the inside of the castle, it had been last subjected at the beginning of the reign of Johann Albrecht III to a thorough clean-up and redecoration, at a cost which had evoked much comment. The furniture of the living-rooms had been completed and renewed in a style at once baronial and comfortable. The escutcheons in the Hall of Justice had been carefully restored to their original pattern. The gilding of the intricate patterns on the vaulted ceilings looked fresh and cheerful. All the rooms had been fitted with parquet, and both the larger and the smaller banqueting halls had been adorned with huge wall paintings from the brush of Professor von Lindemann, a distinguished academician, representing scenes from the history of the reigning house, executed in a clear and smooth style, which was far removed from and quite unaffected by the restless tendencies of modern schools. Nothing was wanting. As the old chimneys of the castle and its many-colored stoves, reaching tier upon tier right up to the ceiling, were no longer fit to use, anthracite stoves had been installed in view of the possibility of the place being used as a residence during the winter. But the day of the seventy-two salvos fell in the best time of the year, late spring, early summer, the beginning of June, soon after Whitsuntide. Johann Albrecht, who had been early informed by telegram that the labor had begun just before dawn, reached Grimburg station by the bankrupt local railway at eight o'clock, where he was greeted with congratulations by three or four dignitaries, the mayor, the judge, the rector, and the town physician. He at once drove to the castle. The Grand Duke was accompanied by Minister of State, Dr. Baron Knobelsdorf, the Adjutant-General of Infantry, Count Schmettern. 
Shortly afterwards two or three more ministers arrived at the royal residence. The court chaplain, Dom Witzelzenus, president of the high consistory, one or two court officials, and a still younger adjutant, Captain von Lichterloh. Although the Grand Duke's physician in ordinary, Surgeon General Dr. Eschrich, was attending the mother, Johann Albrecht had been seized with the whim of requiring the young local doctor, a Dr. Samet, who was of Jewish extraction into the bargain, to accompany him to the castle. The unassuming, hard-working, and earnest man, who had as much as he could do and was not in the least expecting any such distinction, stammered, "'Quite delighted! Quite delighted!' several times over, thus provoking some amusement. The Grand Duchess's bedroom was the bride-chamber, a five-cornered, brightly-painted room on the first floor, through whose window a fine view could be obtained of woods, hills, and the windings of the river. It was decorated with a frieze of medallion-shaped portraits, likenesses of royal brides who had slept there in the olden days of the family history. There lay Dorothea. A broad piece of webbing was tied round the foot of her bed, to which she clung like a child playing at horses, while convulsions shook her lovely frame. Dr. Knadebusch, the midwife, a gentle and learned woman with small fine hands and brown eyes, which wore a look of mystery behind her round, thick spectacles, was supporting the Duchess, while she said, "'Steady, steady, your royal highness. "'It will soon be over. "'It's quite easy. "'Just once more. "'That's nothing. "'Rest a bit. "'Knees apart. "'Keep your chin down.' "'A nurse, dressed like her in white linen, "'helped, too, "'and moved lightly about "'with files and bandages during the pauses. "'The physician in ordinary, "'a gloomy man with a grayish beard, whose left eyelid seemed to droop, superintended the berth. He wore his operating coat over his surgeon-general's uniform. From time to time there peeped into the room to ascertain the progress of the confinement Dorothea's trusty mistress of the robes, Baroness von Schulenburg-Tressen, a corpulent and asthmatic woman of distinctly dragoon-like appearance, who nevertheless liked to display a generous expanse of neck and shoulders at the court balls. She kissed her mistress's hand and went back to an adjoining room, in which a couple of thin ladies-in-waiting were chatting with the Grand Duchess's chamberlain-in-waiting, a Count Windisch. Dr. Samet, who had thrown his linen coat like a domino over his dress-coat, was waiting modestly and attentively by the washstand. Johann Albrecht sat in a neighboring room used as a study, which was separated from the bride-chamber only by a so-called powder-closet and a passage-room. It was called the library, in view of several manuscript folios, which lay slanting in the massive bookshelves and contained the history of the castle. The room was furnished as a writing-room. Globes adorned the walls. The strong wind from the hills blew through the open bow-window. The Grand Duke had ordered tea, and the groom of the chamber, Pral, had himself brought the tray, but it was standing forgotten on the leaf of the desk, and Johann Albrecht was pacing the room from one corner to the other, 
in a restless, uncomfortable frame of mind. His top boots kept creaking as he walked. His aide-de-camp, von Lichterloh, listened to the noise as he waited patiently in the almost bare passage-room. The minister, the adjutant-general, the court-chaplain, and the court officials, nine or ten in all, were waiting in the state-room on the ground floor. They wandered through the larger and the smaller banqueting-halls, where trophies of banners and weapons hung between Lindemann's pictures. They leaned against the slender pillars which spread into brightly colored vaulting above their heads. They stood before the narrow, ceiling-high windows, and looked out through the leaded panes over river and town. They sat on the stone benches which ran round the walls, or on seats before the stoves, whose gothic tops were supported by ridiculous little stooping imps of stone. The bright sunlight made the gold lace on the uniforms, the orders on the padded chests, the broad gold stripes on the trousers of the dignitaries glisten. The conversation flagged. Three-cornered hats and white-gloved hands were constantly being raised to mouths which opened convulsively. Nearly everybody had tears in his eyes. Several had not had time to get any breakfast. Some sought entertainment in a timid examination of the operating instruments and the round leather-cased chloroform jar which Surgeon General Eschrich had left there in case of emergency. After von Bühl zu Bühl, the Lord Marshal, a powerful man with mincing manners, brown toupee, gold-rimmed pince-nez, and long yellow fingernails had told several anecdotes in his quick, jerky way, he dropped into an armchair, in which he made use of his gift of being able to sleep with his eyes open, of losing consciousness of time and place while retaining a steady gaze and alert attitude, and in no way imperiling the dignity of the situation. Dr. von Schröder, Minister of Finance and Agriculture, had had a conversation earlier in the day with the Minister of State, Dr. Baron Knobelsdorf, Minister of Home Affairs, Foreign Affairs, and the Grand Ducal Household. It was a spasmodic chat, which began with a discussion on art, went on to financial and economic questions, alluded, somewhat disapprovingly, to a high court official, and did not leave even the most exalted personages out of account. It began with the two men standing, with their hats in their hands behind their backs, in front of one of the pictures in the larger banqueting hall, each of them thinking more than he said. The finance minister said, "'And this? What's this? What's happening?' Your Excellency is so well informed. Merely superficially, it is the investiture of two grand princes of the blood by their uncle the Emperor. As Your Excellency can see, the two young men are kneeling and taking the oath with great solemnity on the Emperor's sword. Fine! Extraordinarily fine! What color! Dazzling! What lovely golden hair the princes have! And the Emperor exactly as he is described in the books. Yes, that Lindemann well deserves all the distinctions which have been given him. Absolutely. Those which have been given him, those he quite deserves. Dr. von Schröder, a tall man with a white beard, a pair of thin gold spectacles on his white nose, a belly protruding slightly underneath his stomach, 
and a bull neck which lapped over the stiff collar of his coat, looked, without taking his eyes off the picture, somewhat doubtfully at it, under the influence of a diffidence which seized him from time to time during conversations with the baron. This Knobelsdorf, this favorite and exalted functionary, was so enigmatical. At times his remarks, his retorts, had an indefinable tinge of irony about them. He was a widely travelled man, had been all over the world, he had so much general knowledge, and interests of such a strange and exotic kind, and yet he was a model of correctness. Herr von Schröder could not quite understand him. However much one agreed with him, it was impossible to feel that one really understood him. His opinions were full of a mysterious reserve, his judgments of a tolerance which left one wondering whether they implied approval or contempt. But the most suspicious thing about him was his laugh, a laugh of the eyes in which the mouth took no part, a laugh which seemed to be produced by the wrinkles radiating from the corners of his eyes, or vice versa, to have produced those same wrinkles in the course of years. Baron Knobelsdorff was younger than the finance minister. He was then in the prime of life, although his close-trimmed moustache and hair smoothly parted in the middle were already beginning to turn grey. For the rest, a squat, short-necked man, obviously pinched by the collar of his heavily laced court dress. He left Herr von Schröder to his perplexity for a minute, and then went on. Only, perhaps, it might be to the interests of a prudent administration of the privy purse, if the distinguished professor had rested content with stars and titles, to speak bluntly, what may all these delightful works of art have cost? Herr von Schröder recovered his animation. The desire, the hope of understanding the baron, of getting on to intimate and confidential terms with him, excited him. "'Just what I was thinking,' said he, turning round to resume his walk through the galleries. "'Your Excellency has taken the question out of my mouth. I wonder what this investiture cost and all the rest of these wall-pictures, for the restoration of the castle six years ago cost a million altogether. At least that. A solid million, and that amount was audited and approved by Lord Marshal von Bull zu Bull, who is sitting yonder in a state of comfortable catalepsy, audited, approved, and dispersed by the keeper of the privy purse, Count Trümmerhof. Dispersed, or owing, one of the two, this total, I say, debited to a fund, a fund, in a word, the fund of the Grand Ducal Settled Estates. Your Excellency knows as well as I what that means. No, it makes me run cold. I swear I am neither a skinflint nor a hypochondriac, but it makes me run cold when I think of a man, with present conditions staring him in the face, coolly throwing a million away. On what? on a nothing, a pretty whim, on the beautification of the family schloss in which his babies have to be born. Herr von Knobelsdorff laughed. Yes, heaven knows romance is a luxury, and a mighty expensive one, too. Excellency, I agree with you, of course. But consider, after all, the whole trouble in the grand ducal finances is due to this same romantic luxury. The root of the evil lies in the fact that the ruling dynasty are farmers. 
their capital consists in land and soil, their income in agricultural profits. At the present day, they have not been able, up to the present, to make up their minds to turn into industrialists and financiers. They allow themselves, with regrettable obstinacy, to be swayed by certain obsolete and idealistic conceptions, such as, for instance, the conceptions of trust and dignity. The royal property is hampered by a trust entailed in fact. Advantageous alienations are barred. Mortgages, the raising of capital on credit for commercial improvements, seem to them improper. The administration is seriously hindered in the free exploitation of business opportunities by ideas of dignity. You'll forgive me, won't you? I'm telling you the absolute truth. People who pay so much attention to propriety as these, of course, cannot and will not keep pace with the freer and less hampered initiative of less obstinate and unpractical business people. Now then, what, in comparison with this negative luxury, does the positive million signify, which has been sacrificed to a pretty whim, to borrow your excellency's expression, if it only stopped there? but we have the regular expenses of a fairly dignified court to meet. There are the Schlosses and their parks to keep up, Hollerbrunn, Montbriant, Jägerpreis, aren't there? The Hermitage, Delphinenort, the Pheasantry, and the others. I had forgotten Schloss Zegenhaus and the Haderstein ruins, not to mention the old Schloss. They are not well kept up, but they all cost money." There are the court theatre, the picture gallery, the library to maintain. There are a hundred pensions to pay. No legal compulsion to pay them, but motives of trust and dignity. And look at the princely way in which the Grand Duke behaved at the time of the last floods. But I'm preaching you a regular sermon. A sermon, said the Minister of Finance, which Your Excellency thought would shock me, while you really only confirmed my own view. Dear Baron, here Herr von Schröder laid his hand on his heart, I am convinced that there is no longer room for any misunderstanding as to my opinion, my loyal opinion between you and me. The king can do no wrong. The sovereign is beyond the reach of reproaches. But here we have to do with a default, in both senses of the word, a default which I have no hesitation in laying at the door of Count Trümmerhauf. His predecessors may be pardoned for having concealed from their sovereigns the true state of the court finances. In those days nothing else was expected of them. But Count Trümmerhaus' attitude is now not pardonable. In his position as the keeper of the privy purse, he ought to have felt it incumbent on him to put a break on His Highness's thoughtlessness, to feel it incumbent on him now to open His Royal Highness's eyes relentlessly to the facts." Herr Knobelsdorff knitted his brows and laughed. Really, said he, so your excellency is of the opinion that that is what the count was appointed for. I can picture to myself the justifiable astonishment of his lordship if you lay before him your view of the position. No, no, your excellency need be under no delusion. That appointment was a quite deliberate expression of his wishes on the part of His Royal Highness, which the Count must be the first to respect. I expressed not only an I don't know, 
but also an I won't know. A man may be an exclusively decorative personality, and yet be acute enough to grasp this. Besides, honestly, we've all of us grasped it. And the only grain of comfort for all of us is this, that there isn't a prince alive to whom it would be more fatal to mention his debts than to his royal highness. Our prince has a something about him which would stop any tactless remarks of that sort before they were spoken. Quite true, quite true, said Herr von Schröder. He sighed and stroked thoughtfully the swan's down trimming of his hat. The two men were sitting, half turned towards each other, on a raised window seat in a roomy niche, past which a narrow stone corridor ran outside, a kind of gallery, through the pointed arches of which peeps of the town could be seen. Herr von Schröder went on. You answer me, Baron. One would think you were contradicting me, and yet your words show more incredulity and bitterness than my own. Herr von Knobelsdorff said nothing, but made a vague gesture of assent. It may be so, said the finance minister, and nodded gloomily at his hat. Your Excellency may be quite right. Perhaps we are all blameworthy, we and our forefathers too. But it ought to have been stopped. For, consider, Baron, ten years ago an opportunity offered itself of putting the finances of the court on a sound footing, on a better footing anyhow, if you like. It was lost. We understand each other. The Grand Duke, attractive man that he is, had it then in his power to clear things up by a marriage which, from a sound point of view, might have been called dazzling. Instead of that, speaking not for myself, of course, but I shall never forget the disgust on everybody's faces when they mentioned the amount of the dowry. The Grand Duchess, said Herr von Knobelsdorff, and the wrinkles at the corners of his eyes disappeared almost entirely, is one of the handsomest women I have ever seen. That is an answer one would expect of your excellency. It's an aesthetic answer, an answer which would have held quite as good if his royal highness's choice, like his brother Lambert's, had fallen on a member of the royal ballet. Oh, there was no danger of that. The prince's taste is a fastidious one, as he has shown. He has always shown in his wants the antithesis to that want of taste which Prince Lambert has shown all his life. It was a long time before he made up his mind to marry. Everybody had given up all hope of a direct heir to the throne. They were resigned for better or worse to Prince Lambert, whose unsuitability to be heir to the throne we need not discuss. Then a few weeks after he had succeeded, Johann Albrecht met Princess Dorothea, cried, this one or none, and the Grand Duchy had its sovereign lady. Your Excellency mentioned the thoughtful looks which were exchanged when the figures of the dowry were published. You did not mention the jubilation which at the same time prevailed. A poor princess, to be sure, but is beauty, such beauty, a power of happiness or not? Never shall I forget her entry. Her first smile, as it lighted on the gazing crowds, won their love. Your Excellency must allow me to profess once more my belief in the idealism of the people. The people want to see their best, their highest, their dream, what stands for their soul represented in their princes, not their money-bags. 
there are others to represent those. That's just what there are not, just what we have not got. The more's the pity, then. The main point is, Dorothea has presented us with an heir apparent. To whom may heaven grant some idea of figures? I agree. End of section one.